It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Elon Musk versus Mark Cuban versus financier Bill Ackman on diversity, equity, and inclusion. Two, winners and losers of the reveal of the Epstein client list. Three, my emotionally sober thoughts on the loss in the college football semifinal by the Texas Longhorns. It's the Will Kane Podcast on Fox News Podcast. What's up? And welcome to Weekend. Welcome to Friday. As always, I hope you will download, rate, and review this podcast wherever you get your audio entertainment, at Apple, Spotify, or at Fox News Podcast. You can watch the Will Kane Podcast on Rumble or on YouTube. And follow me on X for coming announcements regarding the Will Kane Podcast at Will Kane. I'm back. I'm back stateside, mainland side. I'm back in Texas after a week in Maui. I've kept you up to date throughout the last six months on the evolution of both the fund granting $12,000 grants and the rebuild of Lahaina over the past six months. I got to make my fourth trip this year over Christmas to West Maui. And I will tell you that at times I have talked to friends and we've had conversations about the way this story has faded into the background. What has been a horrific American tragedy has now largely escaped attention. There's great levels of depression and hopelessness. This trip also really reinforced for me that there's an incredible amount of not just resilience, but gratitude. There is a spirit there in West Maui that, I don't know, I guess, I guess there really is no more appropriate way to describe it than of Aloha. My wife sat next to a man. On our way to Hawaii, we almost missed our connecting flight. We were literally the last people to board a Southwest airline flight, which meant we didn't get our pick of the seats. We all sat in a middle seat. And what that meant for some of us was we met strangers. My wife sat there for a five-hour flight from Phoenix to Maui next to a man who had lost everything. I'm not going to reveal his name or where he works because he hasn't given me that license to betray his privacy. But the long and short of it is this man's spirit of gratitude amidst that kind of tragedy was awe-inspiring. He insisted, insisted that my wife and sons meet him at a beach in West Maui so that he could take them diving for octopus and then refuse any compensation. Any 
gratuity. He just wanted to share. He wanted to share West Maui with someone he had just met on an airplane. And there is that spirit of just like pride. Pride in getting to be a part of something so beautiful that it inspires you to want to share with humanity. You know, I connected with quite a few people, and I want to share with you what is an incredible story in, in just a moment. But I also had a vacation in West Maui. I mean, I sat and I watched poolside the Dallas Cowboys beat the Detroit Lions. In fact, one of my friends made fun of me. He said, Mr. Will Kane, who wants to be so attuned to local culture and customs, committed the following sin, this story. Sitting poolside watching the Dallas Cowboys. By the way, I have arrived at, I think, what is a hard and fast rule. There is a two-drink limit on fruity drinks. You know what I mean? Like, you order a Mai Tai or a Pina Colada, and the first one is amazing, and you feel like Will Ferrell in old school. It's just so, it's, it's amazing when it hits your lips. Then it inspires you to get a second Mai Tai or Pina Colada, or even Margarita. But, you know, halfway through the second, you realize I'm tired of this sweetness. And so you kind of just muscle through the second before you move back to beer. So I think at least the male tolerance of a fruity drink is one and a half, which is two orders, two fruity drinks. But I was sitting there with my friends watching Cowboys Lions and the bartender, and we were talking about these cabanas that could be rented where you could watch the game. I was thinking this would be an incredible place to watch the Texas Longhorns game, but it's incredibly expensive. How much is it? Well, we didn't know. So the bartender was going to ask one of the pool attendants at this hotel how much it cost to rent the cabana. And he he yelled out to one of these pool attendants, Aqualani. It turns out that's the name of the service, the subcontractor for the hotel that manages all the poolside services, including cabana rentals. And called this young man over and said, how much does it cost to rent one of those things? Well, I, I guess I wasn't paying close enough attention, but I also feel somewhat justified in making this mistake. Because when a man yells out Aqualani, it's 2023, or was at the time. It's now 2024. And who am I? Who am I to put it past that being someone's name? You know, it wasn't that I was trying to be attuned to Hawaiian culture. It has nothing to do with Hawaii. It more had to do with the fact that, would you really be taken aback? In 2024, if someone's name were Aqualani, but I seem to be the only one that didn't pick up the cue that that was the name of the pool service. So when the young man came over, and there's a group about four of us talking to him about how much it cost to rent that cabana. At the end, I'm the one that turned to him and said, thank you, Aqualani. And they all started laughing immediately. And it took me a good 30 seconds to figure out the joke and where I got it wrong. Dude's name is not Aqualani. He works for Aqualani. But again, Am I the only man that after it being yelled across the pool by the bartender, hey, Aqualani, and it being 2024, would not assume that the kid's name is Aqualani? Thank you, Aqualani. For all my time in Hawaii, I've never been there during the winter. And let me just tell you, you can kind of imagine it in the abstract and you can see the art which kind of gets i guess while it remains abstract for you kitschy to see a whale fluke 
or a whale breaching. But it is something entirely different. And I think it even changes the nature of how you see those photos or that art. When you encounter in person a whale, it is incredible. I've never seen this before. All these years, right there, looking off the coast into the waters between Maui, Lanai, and Molokai, to see these animals, mammals, mammals, who swim thousands upon thousands of miles over a month or two month period from Alaska to this little rock outcropping in the middle of the Pacific, where because of the evolution of nature, that the shelf between these three islands is only 300 feet deep, making it relatively for a gigantic creature that is 60 feet long, relatively serene to both breed and then have calves is incredible. And these humpback whales are gigantic and they perform on the surface. You see the, you know, geyser of spray out in the ocean when you're on the beach at times you can see it happening like you know dozens of times and then when you're out on a boat you can get within i don't know you can't get within i believe it's 100 yards of a whale but they can get within 100 yards of you and then when you see one breach you know Nose breaks the surface half the body up in the air and then fall flat making that gigantic splash it's not just awe-inspiring, it's humbling. Like this gigantic creature whose size is kind of incomprehensible, who reduces the size of the Pacific to a commute. It doesn't just make you feel small, it makes you feel part of something big. And I know that nothing I say here We'll do it justice, and it will be like the verbal or at least the digital equivalent of kitschy beach art. But if nothing else, I think it should be a recommendation for you to be a part of that if you can in person. Incredible. Whales. Some few weeks ago, month ago. I got a letter in the mail at Fox News. I got a letter in the mail from a 12-year-old girl. Her name is Kate Hafler. I want to read you this note because I think this is an incredible story. Kate Hafler wrote me on November 30th in a letter. Hi, Mr. Kane. My name is Kate Hafler, and I'm 12 years old, attending sixth grade Center in Quakertown, Pennsylvania. On August 8th, my family and I were at my nanny's house celebrating her 80th birthday. The next day, we saw the news and felt so sorry for all the people on Maui who lost everything. So when my birthday came around two months later, I received a bead kit from my nanny. I decided to make bracelets and try to sell them so I could give money I made to the poor people of Maui. I call my business Maui 88 by Kate because 88 was when the fire occurred and eight rhymes with Kate. So I have made just under $100. My nanny put, it, put in the rest. And I wanted to share with you some of the photos along with the check. I know you will know who to give this money to. I didn't make as much money as I wanted because I had a cast on my arm at the time. 
but now I will continue to make more bracelets and try to sell them. I've enclosed one for you to share with someone. Yours truly, Kate Haffler. P.S. My uncle has a store, so he let me sell bracelets at his store. And enclosed with this letter was a check made out to Will Kane for $100. I mean, not unlike a presence of a whale, being in the presence of this kind of humanity will make you both feel small and part of something big. It's humbled. What do I do? What do I do with this $100? Do I cash the check? And of course, I have to cash the check made out to Will Kane. And then I have to figure out how to give someone in person $100. To be quite honest, it's easier to grant someone $12,000 through a GoFundMe. And I've tried to reach out to almost, or at least someone connected to me and one of our families has reached out to every single one of these grantees to establish that human connection. Well, what am I going to do? Walk up to someone on the beach and offer them $100? It's a little awkward. I don't really have time to explain this entire story. And, you know, in a way, because this came from Kate, who's 12 years old, it seems appropriate that it should go to a kid. And let's be real, I can't walk up to some girl on the beach and be like, hey, did you lose your home? Here's $100. I can't walk up to some girl, period, and offer her $100. Let's be real. So I spent some time in Maui connecting with some of the people that I've gotten to know over the past six months. I went to church, beautiful church, displaced church who lost its church house in Lahaina. I met many people who were very beautiful families who'd lost their homes and who have been a member of our family now and recipients of the fund. And I met with another man who some of you have perhaps gotten to know by the name of Kakoa Mawit. Now, Kakoa is part of a family that lost 12 homes in Maui. 56 different members of his family have been displaced. They're living all over the island, mostly on West Maui. Everyone's pretty dedicated to trying to stay on West Maui, living in back houses, renting apartments, doing their best to get by. Kakoa wrote me on Christmas Eve. He wrote me the following. Hey, Aloha. I pray that you have a very Merry Christmas and I will be able to spend some time that you will be able to spend some time with the people you love and mean the most to you. Mahalo Nui for the lesson. I've learned through your efforts to help our community. I now understand that America is great because of its people, no matter who is leading. I wrote him back, man, this means the world to me. I would love to share with your permission. Merry Christmas. He said, I want you to share because it's how I feel honestly. I repeat that line. I now understand that America is great because of its people, no matter who is leading. What a wonderful testament to the response of America to Maui. And I'm here to tell you that the response of Maui is beautiful to the rest of America. So I met with Kako and I told him this story about Kate Haffler. And I said to him, can I give you $100 and entrust that you will please pass that along to someone else? He said, it would be my honor. I got a text today from Kokoa. 
he sent me a picture of a beautiful young lady, 13 years old. Her name is Kuomomi Garner. And Kakoa says, Kuomomi Garner said, thank you very much. She appreciates this very kind gesture and wants the person that sent the gift to know how grateful she is. Beautiful smile holding $100. I said, beautiful. Thank you so much. He went on. Momi, Kuomomi goes by Momi. Momi lives in my neighborhood. She lives in a multi-generational property with two houses, which were both lost to the fire. She also lost an uncle who lived in their house with them to the fire. I said, oh, how terrible, man. I'm so sorry. He said, it's very sad. That is a lot to go through for a 13-year-old. What is even worse is her story is more common than it should be. And then he wrote, Kate Haffler is a beautiful little girl. I pray she receives blessings throughout her life. What an awesome story. What an awesome, incredible little girl is Kate Haffler. What a great man is Kakoa Mawit. What a beautiful little girl is Momi Garner. How incredible that they all came together over this tragedy and together illustrate for us the beauty of America. $100. Small compared to what is lost. But big in this whole great thing that is humanity. We'll be right back with more of the Will Cain Podcast. Knock that fire down, 19. Copy, Captain. Let's move. ABC Thursdays. Firefighters, we're family. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. The subject has explosive chemicals. Get down! With fiery romances. You're the love of my life. And Andy is finally in charge. I'm going to be the best damn captain the station has ever seen. Station 19. All new Thursdays, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Shipping can make or break a sale. So optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. Story number one. Elon Musk versus Mark Cuban versus financier Bill Ackman on diversity, equity, and inclusion. Harvard President Claudine Gay has resigned her position as the president of Harvard. She will retain her $900,000 salary and a staff position at Harvard, but she will no longer serve as president. This after something like 50 allegations with supporting evidence of plagiarism by Claudine Gay over the course of her short and unqualified career as president of Harvard. In response, Gay wrote an op-ed in the New York Times. She blames the loss of her position at Harvard on, of course, racism. She has the support of many in what we would call the mainstream media, in what we would call the mainstream of pop culture. Ibram X. Kendi, one of the popular founders or 
one of the founding populizers of anti-racism and DEI, went on to Twitter and proceeded to blame every bit of this on white supremacy. The Associated Press had written a headline, Harvard President's Resignation Highlights New Conservative Weapon Against Colleges, Plagiarism. You see, now, the truth is a weapon being used by conservatives. Plagiarism is simply a weapon for the right. Kendi liked this headline. While most of the world made fun of the AP, Kendi said, this is journalism, getting closer to what truly happened and why. Quote, the plagiarism allegation came not as her, not from her academic peers, but her political foes, led by conservatives who sought to oust gay and put her career under intense scrutiny in hopes of finding a fatal flaw. You see, it's not the crime that matters, but the person that notices the crime. Plagiarism isn't a sin unless it is committed by conservatives. And it certainly isn't a sin if it's noticed by conservatives against someone who has the right ideology. Kendi also wrote, the question is whether all these people would have investigated, surveilled, harassed, written about, and attacked her in the same way if the Harvard president in this case would have been white. I think not. Well, the response to that, Kendi, is she wouldn't have been president of Harvard if she were white. And of course, yes, it would have been the same reaction if she were white, because we know a few weeks earlier, Liz McGill, the president of Penn, was dismissed as president after her similarly abhorrent testimony in front of Congress when it came to anti-Semitism. Right now, by the way, lurking in the background and hoping that her head doesn't pop up above the horizon, is the president of MIT. How has she been totally flying under the radar? Not the target so far for losing her job after both the president of Penn and the president of Harvard have gone down. There was only three of them on the panel that day, and the president of MIT, who just as an illustration, I can't quite recall her name, right now is fading into the background of the shrubs like Homer Simpson in that internet meme. It just shows... Not just how stupid, but what an obvious grift it is for Kendi. We, we, didn't, we know the answer to your question. Kendi, the author of How to Be an Anti-Racist, we know the answer to your question. Because we just did it a few weeks ago to Liz McGill, the president of Penn, who is white. But we also know somebody who is white wouldn't have been in that position as Harvard because Harvard is this far baked into the neo-racist theory of DEI. Coleman Hughes, really good writer, interesting thinker, black, responded to Kendi with the following. It's an article of faith among anti-racist elites that black people are always and everywhere treated worse, no matter the evidence. President McGill, who is white, was ousted instantly for bad testimony. President Gay survived a bad testimony and was only ousted after 50 credible accusations of plagiarism were added onto that horrific testimony over anti-Semitism. How does a rational person look at this pair of events and conclude racism? This is a religion. It is a religion with its high priests. But for the first time, there started to become some apostates within the church of anti-racism. We're beginning to look at the priests and think, huh, you sure are selling a lot of penances. You sure are diddling a lot of boys. Maybe. 
you're not the deserving high priest of this newfound religion. Vivek Ramaswamy had a fascinating exchange with a reporter for the Washington Post. They asked him to denounce white supremacy. He went on to say, I denounce all forms of abhorrent racism. Then they went on to say, but you didn't say anything about white supremacy. He said, I just told you I denounce all forms of horrific racism, but I'm not going to kneel before you in your newfound religion. That requires me to say these specific words and specifically focus on one form of racism, white supremacy. And he's right, because the focus on that one form of racism is designed not just to forgive, but to empower the new form of racism, that is DEI. Vivek said in that exchange, I know what you're going to do. I'm not going to kneel to your religion, and I know what my penance will be. I know what I'll have to pay, the price. The price will be you're going to write a headline that says Vivek Ramaswamy refuses to condemn white supremacy. But I don't care, said Vivek. I'm going to tell you the truth. Of course, he's like a fortune teller. That exact reporter, her name is Meryl Cornfield of the Washington Post, went to Twitter. I asked Vivek if he condemned white supremacy. Vivek said to stop picking on this farce of some figment that exists at some infinitesimally small fringe. He said he condemns vicious racial discrimination, but he would not bend the knee to condemn white supremacy. That's right, Meryl. We all saw the video. He Pulled the cloak off your priest. He exposed and turned over the tables of your money changers. He exposed your neo-racism. That is DEI. Elon Musk put it perfectly on Twitter. Elon Musk said, DEI is racism. Perfect. Now, there have been, as I said, there's begun to be some apostates in the church. People that perhaps, maybe not specifically, were part of a group that would have dismissed criticism of DEI as right-wing or conspiratorial or even racist have started to understand the exact nature of DEI. One of those is New York financier Bill Ackman. Ackman is fabulously wealthy. He um, is the CEO of Pershing Square, a hedge fund. And he's been leading the charge to kind of purge Harvard, his alma mater, of what he has discovered to be anti-Semitic thought. But Ackman went on to Twitter earlier this week, and he said the following in a very long post, some of which I'll read to you. He said the following. I ultimately concluded that anti-Semitism was not the core of the problem. It was simply a troubling warning sign. It was the, quote, canary in the coal mine, despite how destructive it was in impacting student life and learning on campus. I came to learn, said Ackman, that the root cause of anti-Semitism at Harvard was an ideology that had been promulgated on campus, an oppressor-oppressed framework that provided the intellectual bulwark behind the protests that helped generate anti-Israel and anti-Jewish hate speech and harassment. Ackman then went on to say that he did more research and dove into DEI. He said he had always believed that diversity was an important feature of a successful organization. But the further he dug, the more he understood 
He came to find out, I quote, under DEI, one's degree of oppression is determined based upon where one resides on a so-called intersectional pyramid of oppression, where whites, Jews, and Asians are deemed oppressors, and a subset of people of color and LGBTQ people and or women are deemed to be oppressed. Under this ideology, which is the philosophical underpinning of DEI, as advanced by Ibram X. Kendi and others, one is either an anti-racist or an racist. There is no such thing as being not racist. Now, Ackman went on, as I said, in a very long post to, I think, explain spot on the nature of DEI. But if you're listening right now in your car, you're watching online, you're probably going, well, especially if you are a longtime listener to the Will Cain podcast, you're like, I've heard all that before. I understand oppressor and oppressed. In fact, Will, you've used the totem pole instead of pyramid. You've used the totem pole analogy of how they analyze intersectionality and place people at different hierarchies of oppression. And you'd be absolutely right. And it was my reaction when I first read Ackman's post. I was like, well, you know what? This actually kind of pisses me off. I'm kind of frustrated that Ackman all of a sudden discovered something that we've been talking about for years, something that two or three years ago, definitely five years ago, would have dismissed you as a racist. I said these things on the airways of ESPN, and that's described as racist. I've been saying, and I'm not alone. Clearly, I don't, I didn't discover this. None of us are Columbus here. I've been saying it for the last couple of years on Fox News, but now I'm right wing. Now I'm far right. Now I'm alt right. All of us, any of us who understand this, and that's the key here. The sin is understanding. It is research. It is thought. Honestly, it's not even like peeking behind the cloak of a magic trick. It's not even that we had to go backstage at the religious revival of DEI. We just had to listen to the sermon because this stuff is written. There's a long literature, body of literature. There's popular stuff like Ibram X. Kendi. There's curriculum taught in schools. I mean, this stuff is not just undeniable. It is proudly beat it. The chest is beat. It's proudly yelled. This is what we mean by diversity, equity, and inclusion, not race blindness, not race neutrality, but anti-racism is neo-racism. And so as frustrated I was about Ackman somehow just discovering this, quite honestly, I came to appreciate Ackman 12 hours later when I saw this post by Mark Cuban. Mark Cuban, the, until recently, owner of the Dallas Mavericks, still front-facing governor of the Dallas Mavericks took to Twitter and said the following to Elon Musk, who, as I mentioned earlier, said discrimination on the base of race, which DEI does, is literally the definition of racism. Cuban, also in a long post, went on to educate Elon Musk. He said, let me help you out and give you my thoughts on DEI. I'm only going to read to you some of this because it's long, but I'm going to try to give you the flavor of it. One, diversity. Good businesses look where others don't to find the employees that will put your business in the best possible position to succeed. 
you may not agree, but I take it as a given that there are people of various races, ethnicities, orientation, et cetera, that are regularly excluded from the hiring consideration. By extending our hiring search to include them, we can find people that are more qualified. The loss of DEI-phobic companies is my gain. He talks about equity. Treating people equally does not mean treating them the same. I made this mistake for a lot of years. Equity is a core principle of business. He says equity means put your employees in a position to succeed, recognize their differences, and play to their strengths. Inclusion. He defines it as one of his favorite sayings. Great employees reduce the stress of those around them. Create environments that reduce unnecessary stresses for employees. So put them around people who share their culture or look like they're on their skin. Finally, he says, so what's the conclusion? If you don't think there's a need for DEI and it doesn't create a competitive advantage for your company, just look at the replies below. Everyone is entitled to their own POV, but these same feelings, even if they are not said out loud, are heard loud and clear at work. So Mark Cuban goes on in this, and Mark Cuban is not a dumb man. To redefine DEI into a series of personal platitudes, you know, motivational sayings that he says make for good business. Mark Cuban is either an ostrich with his head in the sand. Mark Cuban is either willfully blind. Mark Cuban is possibly gaslighting you and lying for a reason that I cannot quite understand. Mark Cuban is possibly a coward, afraid of his work environment. But Mark Cuban is not a dumb man. In order to arrive at these definitions, which, by the way, maybe in 2014, 15, 16, honestly, I might even forgive someone in 2020 after the national, you know, hyperventilation over the death of George Floyd, where we decided everything and anything in this country was racist, could have surfed the wave of these platitudes and been forgiven. Could have said, I'm just trying to be empathetic. I'm just trying to be inclusive. I feel guilty about the history of America. But at this point, you can't be forgiven. There's too much. And by, by the way, you haven't even taken up DEI on its offer. You haven't done the homework. You haven't done the research. You haven't read a book. All the little dismissive things that are said by the proponents of DEI. You haven't done any of that. If you don't understand that it has a deep philosophical underpinning with specific ideas and definitions of equity, of diversity, you don't get to simply make it yours and define it however you want and then say everybody else doesn't get it. You don't get it. And maybe in the way you run your business, you're not implementing it in the way that Harvard did. Maybe you're not implementing it in the way that is intended. In that case, by the way, the clock is ticking on you. DEI is coming for you. Oh, oh, it's not a forgiving philosophy. You don't get to tailor it personally. No, no, it's one that absolutely finds those apostates. It is one that absolutely finds those sinners and not only casts them out of the church, but nails them to the cross. No, no, no. If you're not living up exactly to the ideology, Kendi will crucify you as a racist. So this idea that you can redefine it in terms of personal platitudes isn't going to save you the time that you think it's going to save you. 
And you're simply going to be ignorant on your way to your own personal sacrifice. The best way to stop discriminating on the basis of race is to stop discriminating on the basis of race. The best way to stop racism is not to be an anti-racist, but it is to be not racist. The best way to arrive at a society that is just and virtuous and moral is to look at each other as individuals and judge each other by our merits and our personal character, not by our superficial characteristics, not by our skin color. Somehow, too much of what was mainstream, and I I guess I'll still assume that Mark Cuban is not a radical leftist who buys into this ideology, but still somehow is willfully blind surfing the mainstream, believes the cloak of empathy. But not even DEI pretends what you are pretending to yourself. Do your homework. Read a book. And then I'll appreciate it the moment. I will appreciate the moment that you end up. I won't be frustrated. I will, maybe for a moment. But in the end, I will appreciate the moment that you end up like Bill Ackman. And then hopefully we can all honestly end up like Elon Musk. The best way to stop discrimination is stop discriminating. We're going to step aside here for a moment. Stay tuned. You know him. You love him from his radio show. I know. I can't believe they gave me a show either. Now Jimmy Fallon is coming to Fox News on Saturday night. Look, I'm not here on behalf of either party. I just want to have a party. Now that's what I'm talking about. So grab a frosty mug, pour yourself a beverage, and join me for the all-new Fox News Saturday night with Jimmy Fallon. Fox News Saturday night with Jimmy Fallon. Premieres Saturday, January 13th at 10 p.m. Eastern. Only on the Fox News Channel. Saturdays just got a whole lot funnier. Story number two. Winners and losers of the reveal of the Epstein client list. A judge has now released at least some portions, some redactions, of a list of clients who frequented, who were friends with, who were accused of crimes when it comes to Jeffrey Epstein, the New York financier who did not kill himself in a prison cell after being arrested on charges of running an underage sex trafficking ring. His partner, Ghislaine Maxwell, to this day, is in jail. Some of the biggest losers in this reveal are the following. Thomas Pritzker. Thomas Pritzker is the Hyatt Hotel billionaire. He's accused in this in these documents of having sex with an underage girl. Pritzker, by the way, as I mentioned, a billionaire. He's also related to J.B. Pritzker, the governor of Illinois. He's related to Penny Pritzker, who's on the board, was part of this whole thing with Claudine Gay, the board at Harvard, who also worked for the Obama administration. No simple rich people are the Pritzkers, but power players in America, as is Prince Andrew, the UK royalty mentioned in this list of clients of Jeffrey Epstein. No surprise, you knew about Prince Andrew. Bill Clinton's name included in this list. The specific allegation in Bill Clinton's name is more hearsay. It's one of the young women saying that she had 
heard from Jeffrey Epstein that Bill Clinton, quote, likes young girls. There are others, hedge funders, rich people on this list. But here's one of the biggest losers, I believe. I do believe that it is a distraction, the list. I don't believe you're anywhere close to hearing the truth of Jeffrey Epstein. Mike Cernovich, he's an attorney, he's a conservative commentator. He's done a lot of stuff. He says he believes that Epstein was an FBI, was an FBI asset. Now, look, honestly, I don't think the story of Epstein is all the powerful people that, I mean, it is in part, but only at a much shallower level of what this story probably is, in part about rich and powerful people who had inappropriate sexual relations with underage women. That in and of itself, I, I know it's a huge story and it should be the thing that part of the thing that we focus on when it comes to, I don't know, high level politicians, rich people, former presidents. But the deeper story is why Jeffrey Epstein was flying under the radar. Why he wasn't investigated? Why to this day we can't get the truth? Why he is protected? Certainly being an FBI asset would in part help, but honestly, I don't know if that's enough. Now, we're the one of the biggest losers because this story is a distraction from the deeper level. You and I have talked together about the Martyr Made podcast, which I talked a lot about during the conflict between Israel and Gaza, Israel and Palestinians, the West Bank. Daryl Cooper does deep dives, history and others. And he did a Jeffrey Epstein episode. And in it, he revealed things that, you know, I would have never known. Like, Ghislaine Maxwell's father, Robert Maxwell, owned a newspaper in London. Robert Maxwell, I think it's pretty well documented right now, was at least an asset for Israeli Mossad. Uh, whether or not he had deeper connections and he was an agent, well, I don't think we'll know from Mossad. He was not only a billionaire, but a hundred millionaire. And he died in mysterious circumstances on a yacht in the ocean. Epstein himself seems to have been ushered through life at a certain point, achieving places of influence and significance that his qualifications had never added up to. He was a high school mathematics teacher who became a big time hedge fund guy because he was so good at math. The point is, he wasn't just protected. He was ushered along the way. The implication, the implication by guys like Cooper is that Epstein was also an asset for Mossad. The whole idea is to create a compromising situation of powerful and influential people in the United States in compromised positions so that you can exert influence. I don't know. That's what we'll never know. We don't know the truth behind any of this. But this list so far makes us one of the losers because I think it is a distraction from the deeper part of this story. It's not what. Jeffrey Epstein did. But who was Jeffrey Epstein? Some of the winners for what it's worth on this list. For now, we'll say Jimmy Kimmel. Look, Aaron Rodgers went on the Pat McAfee show on ESPN and he made a joke. I think it was pretty clearly a joke. Like the Epstein list is about to be revealed. And he's like, Jimmy Kimmel's super nervous. And Jimmy Kimmel makes jokes about people every night. Every night. I mean, no, no less uh, slanderous. I mean, on many occasions, then certainly regarding public figures and what Roger said about Kimmel, but everybody in sports me is freaking out that Kimmel had no, he had no humor about it, came back strong and said, you'll be hearing from my legal team. So is Rogers, is McAfee, is ESPN going to get sued? And by the way, ESPN and ABC are both owned by Disney. So I don't know how that's going to work. 
But I mean, it's no surprise. Kimmel's not on the list. So I guess he's a winner. You know, this is not on the list. Trump. All that talk for is Trump one of the guys? No. I mean, he knew who Epstein was. They knew each other, but no record of him going to any islands or properties in Palm Beach or anything like that in these lists. But again, I think we are all the biggest loser until we get to the truth of who is Jeffrey Epstein. Story number three. My now more emotionally sober thoughts on the loss by the Texas Longhorns. And quite honestly, to recharacterize that in a more appropriate manner, the win by the Washington Huskies. I got a lot of notes from you guys that you tuned into Wednesday's episode, hoping to hear my thoughts on Texas and Washington. It's a tough loss. (laughs) It's tough here for a fan of Texas. And that's the thing. I'm a fan. Okay. You know, I tweet through games often. I post on Instagram. I'm having fun mostly. You know, I saw during the game, some people say, well, I've lost a lot of respect for you, Will. You're overly emotional. I mean, I got a fair amount of that. You know what? Get out of here. Is what I do. I've told you before. I ride the roller coaster all the way to the top, and then I dip all the way to the bottom. I complain about the refs. And I know I complain about the refs too much. But you know what else is true? So do you when you're a fan and you're watching your team. I just do it out loud. This is how I fan. But now, some days removed, I'm a little more emotionally sober about the loss by the Longhorns. Here's what I think. I think we were packing up to go. We had packed up the nachos. We had packed up the cooler. We were headed out. That game was over. Like with five minutes left in the game, that game was over. And then it wasn't. And the Longhorns were alive with 45 seconds to go and the ball. They were alive with 20 seconds to go from the 15-yard line. And they had no business, no business being in that game. So first of all, that was a horrible game played by the Texas Longhorns. It really was. I mean, turnovers, fumbles, penalties. On the penalty front, I still do believe this. I do believe this. I remember when I played water polo at Pepperdine, I remember my coach, Terry Schroeder, like working the refs. Water polo is a little bit like basketball, and all sports are. Like, fouls are subjective. You could call a foul on any given play, certainly in basketball and water polo. And honestly, you could call holding on any given play in the NFL. So by the very nature of that, it's somewhat subjective. So when you have a huge penalty disparity between two teams, it is suspicious. Okay, you, you literally could call, I mean this, you could call it on any play. I want to talk to a referee about this. So when you see one team have nine penalties, another have zero, you get suspicious. It should, I think, in all sports pretty much, be roughly equivalent. Maybe it's 8-6, maybe it's 9-7, whatever. But it should be roughly equivalent because we're not looking for a perfectly clean game. This is a mistake I think that refs make. They think that we're there to make sure there's never a penalty. There's never a holding. There's never pass interference. I don't think that's what we're looking for as fans. I think we're forgiving. I think we know that's going to happen. But what I want is a fair game. I don't want a perfect game. I want a fair game. And a fair game, and a game where infractions are inevitably subjective, requires there not be this massive disparity in penalties. There was in that game. Now look, in the end... Of course, Texas is to blame. There are such things, teams who are undisciplined. 
But I, I don't think it's 10 to 0, by the way. I don't think it's 11 to 2 on penalties. I'm not saying that's what in this game, but it's often like that. But Texas had, I mean, the turnovers. Texas played a bad game. Quinn Ewers, I mean, it's kind of mixed emotions about Quinn. Quinn was okay at times, but that was way below what we've come to expect from Quinn Ewers, quarterback. And, and honestly, you give an NFL-ready quarterback, which that's the debate, is Quinn Ewers going to the NFL or coming back to Texas, the ball with 45 seconds left, you're going to win the game. The NFL-ready quarterback against what's supposed to be one of the worst pass defenses in, the, in college football in Washington, you're going to win the game. And he didn't. And yet there was Texas in the game after playing that poorly. In those last 45 seconds, I've just like stewed on this. Those play calls from Sark and execution from Quinn. I just don't understand. At that point, I do expect Texas to win the game. Throw it to your NFL receivers. Xavier Worthy, first or second round wide receiver. Adnai Mitchell, first or second round wide receiver. Jatavion Sanders, first or second round tight end. Throw it to him. More than once in the final play to Mitchell, which wasn't a good throw. Play it to them. Not swing passes to freshman running backs. Put it, Nick Saban once said this very well. Like he learned, I think he learned in high school, like you put the ball in the hands of your best players. And that's it. That's all you have to do. And didn't. And that, that's when you got to win the game. Now, I will say, the only thing that helps me in this situation is so hard because I actually think Texas would have beat Michigan and won the national champion. I really do. Because Texas stops the run. That's what they do well. Michigan runs the ball. That's their strength. It's strength on strength. It's strength on strength, and I think Texas would have won that game against Michigan. But instead, it was strength on weakness with Washington. Texas's kryptonite was Washington's strength. We knew that going in. Washington's number one passing offense in the country. Texas poor at stopping the pass. And that's the way the game played out. And this is where I need to back up as a fan and say, I'm going to give credit where credit is due. Washington was awesome. Michael Penix was awesome. I mean, unstoppable. Damn near perfect. Three NFL-ready stud-wide receivers. And what is it? McMillan and Polk and Adunze. Is that how you say his name? I don't know. I'll know in a few months when he goes in the first round of the NFL draft. I know that Penix was 19 for 20 going to those wide receivers for something like 325 yards. Texas secondary could not stop them. And by the way, that's what you do. You play to those studs. And Penix was absolutely incredible. Makes me think that they'll beat Michigan. But I don't know, because now this study in contrasts. You know? Awesome defense versus awesome offense. Who wins that game? Washington, and specifically Michael Penix, were incredible. Texas will be back. Texas is back, for the record, by the way. Texas is back. And Texas will be back. All this. I love everybody. Oh, oh hope you enjoyed your run. It's, uh, you know, you're going to the SEC now. Won't be back. I mean, it's already happened. We are back. It's like, it's like that, again, that internet emoji of the house burning down, everyone saying it's all right. For Texas haters, your house is burning down. Keep saying it's all right. It'll go back. We're back. We're going to be. I have, I'm, I'm, I'm sitting pretty. I made a $1,000 bet. Two different. Two friends. Texas would win the SEC within the first five years of joining it. I'm feeling good. Number two ranked, two or three ranked recruiting class in the country. Five-star recruits all over the place. Arch Manning waiting to play. I'm feeling good. Not me, I mean, I'm not feeling great right now, this particular week. 
but I'm feeling good about the future because Texas is back. I got a lot of emails regarding my New Year's resolutions. I'll walk through those on Monday's episode of the podcast. You and I will talk about getting this year started off right. It's great to be back with you again. And remember, we got some big announcements coming up. I'll see you again next time on the Will Cain Podcast. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcast And Amazon Prime members, you can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. 